Hi, welcome to Our Christ. This is a channel dedicated to Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox alike. Today I'm joined by Father John Burr. Father John is a British Eastern Orthodox priest and a theologian. Since 2020, he has served as the Regius Professor of Humanity at the University of Aberdeen. He's former Dean of St. Vladimir's Orthodox Theological Seminary, where he was the Director of the Master of Theology Program and the Father George Florovsky Distinguished Professor of Patristics. So just to begin, Father John, can you please tell us a bit about your background and some of the key currents that have helped to form your character and that have moved you <laughs> and all these things? <laughs> so I, I grew up in Bristol. I'm a Bristolian and still feel Bristol very strongly in my heart. Um, on my father's side, I'm Russian immigration. So my father's family came over, his grandparents, both his grandparents actually met in England and got married there, but both of them left Russia after the revolution. My great-grandfather came over to, the, to London as a priest in 1926. He was sent there to serve the church there. My father was a priest. Um, on my mother's side, it's Swiss German, and her father was a Lutheran minister. So on both sides, it's academic and ecclesial and all the rest of it. Uh, but growing up in, in Bristol, uh, in the 70s and 80s, I guess. Like most teenagers, I left the church, I went off, did all sorts of other things, mm -hmm. and I came back to the church. Um, actually, on my just after my 17th birthday. Uh, actually, I should slip it first back. The, the first real influence on me from an ecclesial dimension, my family back, my family, my family background, but was Metropolitan Anthony Bloom. Um, he and my grandmother were school children together in Paris. So, you know, go way back. She knew him well. We knew him well. He baptized me. He heard my first confession. I learned to serve in the altar with him. He was absolutely wonderful with me as a, as a young child. Uh, but as I said, during my teenage years, I, I left the church. I went off and did my prodigal thing. And then after my 17th birthday, I woke up one morning, a couple of weeks after, and said, enough of all of this. I'm off to a monastery. And my parents let me drop out of school, and I went off to Padre Sophroni, Archimandrite Sophroni, now St. Sophroni's Monastery in Essex. Yeah, He was still alive at the time. It's still a fairly small monastery. I was 17, hadn't been to church for, I don't know, four or five years. I turn up, um, not to become a monk, but just to, you know, change the direction of my life. And I stayed there basically from Christmas through to Easter. So for four or five months, living with them um, and I then carried on finishing off my A-levels, went to university and then ended up in Oxford with Metropolitan Callistos doing postgraduate work with him and my doctorate with him. So really those were the, the three biggest influences in my life. Uh, Metropolitan Anthony Bloom, Archimandrite Sophroni and then Metropolitan Callistos. And then as I was finishing my doctoral work, I got invited to go and teach at St. Vladimir's Seminary, where Father Tom Hopko was a dean. And I would add him as actually the fourth major influence on my life, shaping me theologically, spiritually, liturgically. Yeah. So that, that's my background and, and my work. Wonderful. Yeah. Thank you, Father John. And um, what is it about some of those figures that you mentioned that precisely maybe moved you so much and has been so influential? What makes them so distinct and... Um, I guess, admirable for, as Christian characters? You know, each of them, for me, influenced me in very, very different ways. And I think that that really pertains to the time of my life. Yeah, you know, so with the Mitchell and Anthony, it was that, like, my first seven or eight years, if that ties me, uh, I learned to serve in church with him. I learned how to be in the liturgy with him. I learned how to pray liturgically with him. Yeah, you know, knowing how to stand in the altar, just what it means to do all of that. Then with Sophroni, you know, I hadn't been to church for five years. I turn up at the monastery of St. John the Baptist and their regular prayer at that point, it still is, but then it was a much smaller community, was two hours of the Jesus prayer in the morning and the evening. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, so not, and obviously this is during the week and weekends and so on, but not having been to church at all and then learning, uh, sitting down for two hours in the morning from six o'clock to eight o'clock in the morning and then five to seven in the evening, sitting alongside Father Sophroni, now Saint Sophroni, learning how to pray the Jesus prayer, you know, but any standard that's kind of influential in your, in your, 
in your formative teenage years. That was, you know, hugely influential like that. I didn't have long theological conversations with them. Yeah, I just learned how to how to pray in that in that kind of monastic setting. Yeah, beautiful. Um, and then with Kalistos, you know, by that time I'd done my first degree in London and I was learning to be a scholar and who better to learn from than from the Metropolitan Kalistos. So very different, different influences um, and each totally appropriate for the time of my life with each of them. And then with uh, Father Thomas Hopko, um, really with Father Thomas, it was learning to have a passionate love for the scriptures. Hmm. Yeah, something I'd never really, you know, it, it was assumed with Metropolitan Callistos, but really that grounding in the scriptures really came from Father Tom Hopkin. Yeah, brilliant. Um, thank you for sharing that, Father John. And um, just today then, I'd love to maybe um, speak more to some of these themes, especially as it pertains to your work at your, and your academic work in particular. So One of the things I'm eternally grateful to Metropolitan Callistos for is that he suggested I do my doctoral work on Irenaeus, St. Irenaeus of Lyon, writing about the year 180 AD. Yeah? And Irenaeus has got the most brilliant lines. You know, the glory of God is a living human being. I mean, spectacularly beautiful. You know, it's not the, the duty of the human being is to glorify God. And the glory of God is a living human being. It's just phenomenal understanding of what it is to be human. Um, so I did my doctoral work on that with, with Callistos. Then, as, as I mentioned, I went to St. Vladimir's Seminary, invited to come and teach, but they had a requirement that I had to do a THM. I had my doctorate, but I had to do a THM. I had to get a, th I had to get a degree from an orthodox institution before I could teach. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, I like learning. It wasn't going to be a problem. The more I can study, the better. Um, and so I continued to work on Irenaeus. And what I did was to translate his work, The Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching. Yeah, it's a short work written in, again, 180 or so, called, simply called On the, Apostol the, the Demonstration, the Proof, the Showing of the, the Apostolic Preaching. It's only in Armenian, so I had to learn Armenian to do it. And so it was a really long, hard slog. But that meant that I had to keep on addressing the question, why is he calling it the Apostolic Preaching yet he never quotes the New Testament. You know, if you're going to talk about the apostolic preaching, surely you're going to be quoting Paul or Romans or, or, or Acts or Peter's speech in Acts or something like that, yeah? But he doesn't. He shows it all from the scriptures, from the Old Testament, okay? And so it's kind of just patiently, patiently pouring over that question as I was grappling with the complexities of our meaning and figuring out how to translate it, that, that pushed me to realize that, in fact, the apostolic preaching, the very preaching of the gospel, is always done vis-a-vis -vis the scriptures. Yeah? Mm -hmm. You know, it is not simply a report about what happened yesterday. It's a scriptural interpretation of what they had witnessed. Yeah? Um, and then in scriptural meaning, you know, the, uh, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets, okay? Um, and then, in fact, the way that the gospel is presented is always done in that way. So you have the disciples just not recognizing who Christ is throughout his ministry. Even when they seem to get it, they actually misunderstand. You know, they, they flee from him on the cross. They, they run away in fear. They don't understand the empty tomb. They come to the, uh, they encounter the risen Christ and they don't immediately recognize. The clearest example is in, in Luke, Luke 24. It's only when he opens the scriptures, their hearts start to burn. They persuade him to stay the night. They recognize him in the breaking of the bread and then he's gone. Yeah. So it's, it's this, in, this scripturally mediated encounter with the risen Lord, which is the ground of their proclamation. Okay. Um, and then, in fact, this, uh, this according to the scriptures, presenting it in accordance with the scriptures and the breaking of the bread in Luke, Luke 24, that goes back to Paul. You know, Luke was Paul's disciple. Luke wrote down Paul's gospel. The only two things that Paul says he received and delivered. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the only time he uses this really authoritative formula. I delivered to you what I receive. It is specifically this, that Christ died in accordance with Scripture, was raised in accordance with Scripture, 
um, and that he delivered what he received from the Lord himself in the night in which he's given up, he took bread, broke it, and so on. Yeah. So those are the two things. Those are the grounding of the tradition, the the encounter with the with the risen Christ through the scriptures in the breaking of the bread. Okay. Um, and then that really, you know, working through all of that, and the you know other writings like Melita and so on, really takes you to the heart and the fabric of the way in which the gospel is proclaimed. And then the continuing reflection on that and how it developed. So then I started, you know, as teaching for many years, teaching the fathers, going one by one through the different fathers and tracing how they did this. Yeah, how they continued to reflect on the revelation of God in Christ through the opening of the scriptures. Okay. So that it's not the development of you know, people will always say the, the fourth century was about Trinitarian theology. The fifth century was about Christology. Yeah? Mm -hmm. No, it's totally about Christ. And it's how scripture speaking about Christ. You know, the, 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 the text of debate in the fourth century of Proverbs 8.22, the Lord created me the beginning of his ways. How does that speak? There you have wisdom. Christ is the wisdom of God speaking about herself. The Lord created me. How do you take that? That's what the debate was about. Similarly with Nestorius and his teachers, Diodor and Theodore, the way that they separated the Old Testament from the New Testament to speaking about two different things correlates to their, to their separation between the word of God and the man Jesus. So it's, it's all, all exegetical all the way through. Yeah, and then going through all of that, um, I got to the fifth century. I wrote on Diodor and Theodore and their reception. And then I realized that to go further, I'd actually have to go backwards because the other really key figure in the fifth, sixth century was, well, well not figure, but movement was Origenism that got condemned in the, in the fifth council, um, you know, as mediated through Evagrius and all sorts of other people. So I figured that if I was going to really understand that properly, I'd have to go back to Origen and really study him again. That resulted in a new edition of Origen, presenting him quite differently. And then I wrote another book on Irenaeus, and then I realized that if I'm going to uh, really ground what I see the patristic tradition doing, I actually need to go back to John himself. Yeah. Maybe the next book would be on Paul, but you know, I'm going to start with one, one at a time. Uh, and the reason for starting with John is because, uh, well, if for no other reason, Irenaeus claims to be a disciple of Polycarp, and he remembers what Polycarp told him about how Polycarp had heard all the words of life from John. So there's immediately that continuity there. Yeah. So going back from Irenaeus to John was, was the most natural step. But also because John really is the gospel which gives the most uh, dynamic fruit for a theological reflection thereafter. Yeah, the prologue, in the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word was God, all the way down to the word became flesh and dwelt among us, or is it dwelt in us, and all of those kind of questions. So I took it back to John. Um, Knowing that I had to do that, I then realized that I had to read through a whole century's worth of scholarship on John. If I was going to engage it adequately, I'd have to go and look at what New Testament scholars were saying about John in the 20th century. So that meant many years of reading for all of that. Yeah. Um, and there's some really fascinating things that were being done with John or written about John in the 90s, John Ashton and people like that thereafter. And then about the same kind of time, uh, half a dozen years ago, seven or eight years ago, somebody had recommended that I read a book by this French phenomenologist called Michel Henry. They, they recommend, something recommended a book that, of his called I Am the Truth. Yeah? And I read it and I was totally blown away by it because he seemed to be coming to the same kind of conclusions that I was coming to from reading these early Christian writers. So along with reading all the material on John, I realized that in order to understand what Michel Henry was doing, I had to go back and reread the corpus of Western philosophy from Descartes onwards. Which I spent about five years doing whilst reading the Johannine material um, in order to trace the evolution of the discourse, which ended up with Michel Henry. He wasn't a theologian. He wasn't engaging with any of that. He was coming out of a tradition of phenomenology. 
his main teacher inspiration was Husserl, but in order to understand Husserl, you had to go back to Kant and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 and my first degree is in philosophy and I hadn't read any of it some 20 years. So, you know, it was, it was, it was going back to my roots, talking about my roots mm -hmm. and uh, retracing them, but now with greater depth, having spent 20 years in the early church. So, you know, a good half decade or more, half dozen years of preparatory reading for all of that, during which time I was writing the edition on Origin. Um, and then the, I think the only way I can describe the book is to say it's a three-way conversation between three different groups of readers of John. Yeah? The first group of readers, you know, New Testament scholars or literary critics will talk about the readers. Yeah, and by that, they mean a hypothesized, imagined community. We've got the text, who were Matthew's readers, Mark's readers, Luke's readers? How would they have responded with this text? Okay, it's a hypothesis, and ultimately it's circular. You're basing your understanding of what you think the readership was, or the idealized reader, by reference to the text, and how you're reading it, and then you're circling. Yeah. In the case of John and John alone, we've actually got figures who recall him. Yeah, it's, it's really unique. We don't have that for Paul. We don't have it for Peter. We don't have it for anybody else. Second century figures who trace their lineage directly back to John. Yeah, uh, And that was really noted in the 19th century. J.B. Lightfoot, the great bishop, um, he, he described it as Peter and Paul founded communities. John founded a school. Yeah, yeah so really very strong theologically distinct group of Christians. And what's really unique about them is that it seems that they were the first ones to have an annual celebration of Easter. Okay, so you've got this, you know, Polycarp, Melito, uh, Polycrates, Irenaeus, the earliest readers of John. I also included Origen among them. He wasn't in that direct lineage, but we've got a commentary on John by Origen, and, well, Origen's brilliant, so what, what can you do? So the earliest readers of John, um, part one. Part two is contemporary scholarship on John. John Ashton, J. Louis Martin, people like that, and trying to bring what I learned from the part one, early readers of John, into dialogue with the readers in part two, yeah, the modern critical modern uh, critical scholars, New Testament scholars, and that was really fruitful. And then the third part was Michel Henry, a completely different kind of discourse, but again another reader of John. So you've got three different readings of John. And you're trying to bring them all together as an act of theology. You know. We tend to think about the history of theological reflection through the early centuries, through Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea in 325, the first ecumenical council called by Constantine, um, the emperor, resulting in the creed, the creed which is still said today by the majority of Christians. Okay. Uh, Nicaea, uh, then um, Constantinople, Ephesus, Chalcedon, and so on, the, the early councils. Um, because of how we today think about theology, where we think in terms that there are several different key loci of theology, Trinitarian theology, Christology, Ecclesiology, Mariology, Pneumatology, all these different things, they're different things. Yeah? We then tend to think of um, the first century, the fourth century, from Nicaea to Constantinople, as being the development of Trinitarian theology. And then we have the Christological controversies. Yeah? I don't think it actually works that way. Um, and the only reason it, we think it holds that way is because we've got handbooks of dogmatic theology, which have got a chapter on the Trinity followed by a chapter on Christ. Yeah? If you had asked Athanasius or Basil or Gregory, were they developing Trinitarian theology? They would have had no idea what you were talking about. Yeah? And then if you went to Cyril of Alexandria and say, you know, it's not like Cyril of Alexandria woke up in the morning and said, okay, they've done Trinity, let's move on to Christology. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't work like that. What I would say rather is that the point of all of these councils 
is to affirm that Jesus Christ, and because of what we said earlier, by Jesus Christ, I specifically mean the crucified and risen one, as proclaimed by the apostles in accordance with scripture and encountered in the breaking of the bread. That one, that's the one I'm talking about. This one is truly what it is to be God, yet other than the one he calls Father. And he is truly what it is to be human. Yeah, and these are uh, exegetical considerations as well. He, which is not to say, you've got God and you've got human humanity and Jesus somehow brings them together, which is how we, we tend to think. We start off with, an, you know, God's out there. We just celebrated Christmas. That's when he united human nature to himself. But what you're doing then is you're starting off with an understanding of God and starting off with an understanding of the human being, and you're bringing them together. Yeah, Jesus unites both in one. But what you've done in that case is you've started off with a non-Christian God because you start off with a God other than how he shows himself in Christ. You start off with your own idea about God, not the one that Christ has revealed, and you start off with a non-Christian understanding of the human being, and you brought these together. I don't say you should think about it the other way around. No, this Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen one, as proclaimed by the apostles in accordance with the scripture, encountered in the breaking of the bread, that Jesus Christ, he defines for us both what it is to be what it is to be god and what it is to be human he defines for us what these are yeah and he defines for us what it is to be god and what it is to be human in one which is mind-blowing mm -hmm. yeah you can really say he shows us what it is to be god in the way that he dies as a human being yeah, it's not he shows us what it is to be God by doing things we think gods do. Mm -hmm. You know, throwing lightning bolts, moving mountains, all the kind of things we think God should be doing. If only we prayed hard enough, you know, he would get me a bigger house and a better car or whatever. Yeah. No, uh, he did all his miracles and the disciples had no clue. Yeah, they didn't get it from that. They, they're very emphatic. They don't get it from that. Nor simply by seeing him on the cross, apart from the Gospel of John. But the Gospel of John is different. We can come back to that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all run away and deny him. Nor seeing the empty tomb. They say, what's happened? Has someone stolen the body? Nor even encountering the risen Christ. They don't recognize him until something happens. And then that something kind of defines their, their, their encounter with him. I use the example of Luke 24, the opening of scriptures and the breaking of the bread, which then forms a very apostolic proclamation. Yeah? So the turning point is the passion. And the passion initially, and in the Gospel of John, with whose disciples it was initially celebrated, is thought of as a single event encompassing both crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost, all together as one. Yeah? Just historically speaking, it starts off as a single night celebration on the 14th of Nisan, and only by the 4th century does it come to be a three-day, then a week-long celebration, and so on. In a sense, you could only do that once you've got to Christianize Jerusalem after Constantine. You, know, you can go over here for the entry, Palm Sunday. You can go over here for the foot washing. You can, go over, you, you can have a whole litter of space and time. But initially, it starts off as a single event. And then even when it kind of refracts the pure white light into a spectrum, it still holds together as a single event. Christ destroys death by his death, trampling down death by death. Yeah. So the, vic the, 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 the death is a moment of weakness, frailty of common mortality, but in Christ's case, it is also the moment of victory. So it's not simply that he died, it's the way in which he died. He shows us what it is to be God. And that way is something that we only know by going back to Isaiah, the suffering servant, or Exodus, or Jonah, or all the other scriptural material that helps inform uh, our understanding of who this Christ is. Yeah? So he shows us what it is to be God 
in the way he dies as a human being. And simultaneously, he shows us what it is to be human by doing that. I was really blown away with, um, you know, one thing that was on my mind for many years till I really got to work with John, Ignatius of Antioch, you know, on his way to martyrdom in Rome, he beseeches the Roman Christians. He writes a letter to them saying, whatever you do, don't hinder me from my martyrdom. Birth pangs are upon me. I'm about to come to the light. When I will have arrived there, I will be a human being. He's not yet born. He's not yet living. He's not yet human. He will only do that when he um, follows Christ in his martyrdom. Yeah. Likewise, Irenaeus, when he says the glory of God is a living human being, the second half of that sentence is, and the life of the human being is to see God. Well, no one can see God and live. So the living human being he's talking about is the martyr. Okay? <laughs> it's always, that part's always forgotten. Okay? And, and, then, and then in the, the book on the Gospel of John, I trace that back to Christ's words on the cross. His final word on the cross, only in the Gospel of John, it's finished. And I argue, I think persuasively, but I argue anyway, that, that what he's specifically referring to is Genesis 1, 26, 27. Yeah, so the Gospel of John tells you from the beginning he's playing with Genesis. In the beginning, in the beginning. Yeah, so John wants you to understand his Gospel by reference to Genesis. Also Exodus, because there's a lot of liturgical material and the building of the temple and so on. But in, for this matter, it, it's Genesis. <clears throat> and so uh, what I noticed with regard to Genesis 1 is that in every other day of creation in Genesis 1, God says, let there be. It's simply issued with an imperative. He speaks everything into existence. Let there be light. Let there be a firmament. Let the waters be gathered. Let the dry land. All of these. Let there be, let there be, let there be. Yeah? It is. It's good. Next day, and so on. And then having spoken everything into existence, he then um, begins his own project. And he begins his project, which is specifically, let us make a human being. Yeah, and, and, and the, the, the distinction between, you know, let there be and let us make, it's not just simply the verb, let there be, let, there, let us make. It's that one's an imperative, one's a subjunctive. Let us make is an announcement of a project. Yeah, this is, you know, he set the scenery. Let there be, let there be, let there be. The scenery is set, and now he begins his own project. And his own project is to make a human being in his image, and that's what we finally see in Christ on the cross. Teteliste. It's finished, it's brought to completion, it's perfected. Yeah? And it's witnessed to by Pilate, who in the Gospel of John alone says, behold the human being. So you've got scripture starting off by, let us make a human being, and concluding with, behold the human being. Here is the work of God, the living human being, God now rests in the tomb on the Sabbath. This is the rest for the eschatological eighth day, the renewed creation. Okay, And when you start to think about that, that is absolutely mind-blowing. Christ shows us what it is to be God in the way that he dies as a human being. And really, you could say, if he'd shown us what it is to be God in any other way, how could we have had a part in it? If he turns what it is to be God by throwing lightning bolts, well, I can't do that. Yeah. If he turns what it is to be God by being rich and powerful, well, okay, great for rich and powerful people. If he turns what it is to be God by being poor and outcast, well, again, it would have been applicable to half or 90% of the world's population, whatever. If he turns what it is to be God by being a first century Jew, well, that would be great for first century Jews. Any other way would have been exclusively for half or more of the population. Yeah? If he shows us what it is to be God in the way he dies, well, guess what? That's what we've all got in common. Yeah. yeah? No doubt about it. From the beginning of the world onwards, we die. Yeah? And moreover, you can say, um, we have come into existence 
with no choice. You know, there's a novel by Dostoevsky where one of the characters, Kirillov, points out, nobody asked me if I wanted to be born. Here I am, I've got no choice about the matter. We think we're free, but we've got no freedom about the fact that we exist. We're here, whether we like it or not. We've been thrown into an existence in which whatever we do, we will die. We're as good as dead from the beginning. Yeah? Just straightforward. We're going to die. However good I make, try and be, however, whatever I do, however healthily I eat, however much I exercise, I'm going to die. It sucks. Yeah. <laughs> but what Christ has now done is to turn that death inside out. Death now becomes a means of life. Yeah. So whereas out of fear of death, we've tried to hold on to our life, thinking that maybe I can hold on to it and eke out a few more days out of fear of death. On the other hand, if we take up the cross of Christ and learn to lay down our life, in a free, voluntary, self-offering love for our neighbor, for Christ, for the gospel, and all the ways one can spell that out, yeah? Then the life I begin to live cannot be touched by death because I've entered into it through death. I can only begin to do it in this life because I'm still going to die because no matter how well I learn to lay down my life, it's still me who's doing it. I'm caught in a first-person singular, yeah, until I finally die and I'm clay in the ground, then God can take the clay and make a living human being. But I'm learning how to die so that, as the Athenite monks would say, if you learn how to die before you die, when you die, you won't die. <laughs> okay? Yeah. You know, I'll be able to say, into thy hands I commend my spirit, because I've already, I'm entering into that kind of life which cannot be touched by death, because I've entered into it by taking up the cross. Okay, And then in doing that, we've come into existence, I said, uh, in necessity and mortality. Yeah? Nobody asked me if I want to be born. Whatever I do, I'm going to die. I can now, in Christ, by Christ, turn that necessity and mortality inside out to make it freedom and voluntary self-sacrificial love. To be the ground of my existence rather than mortality and necessity. Yeah, and I do that by saying, "Let it be." Yeah, just like Christ in Gethsemane says, "Father, it's possible. Let this cup pass. Never, it's not what I will, but what you will. Let it be." What Mary says, "Let it be." What Ignatius says on his way to martyrdom, "Let it be." Birth pangs upon me. I'm about to be born into life. Don't try and talk me out of it. Let it be. Yeah, and then when you think about that, it becomes even more mind blowing. To go back to Genesis 1, everything else in Genesis 1 is God says, let there be, let there be, let there be. Yeah? But for his own particular work to make a human being, we're the ones who've got to say, let it be. We're the ones who've got to say, let it be to the work which is God's own work. Because Christ has shown us what it is to be God in the way he dies as a human being. Yep, that's the um, most clarifying. Thank you, Father John. And I think um, to I think part of the, the appeal of or what I'm trying to accomplish with this channel is to take people away from those um, conceptions that they have, which I think are largely secular. And um, as you said, they're the way we view time and the way we view Christ and history and everything is being conditioned for, I guess, the last few hundred years. You, you know better than me studying this uh, philosophy in depth, but seems to be conditioned by secularism and perceiving a sacred realm, a, a secular realm, and so on. And um, I think your work is actually just targeted yeah. that head on. I think that's important. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you too about um, then the, I guess, practical implications of this. So what does it mean then within that context for us to be born again in Christ in the church and how we incarnate um, the word and glorify God through our bodies and everyday life and so forth. So um, I think one example that you have mentioned that in your work that I think is most important is the kind of marriage, for example, which many of us are called to and martyrdom and dying to self and so forth. Um, through that, could you go into that a little bit and tell us what that might mean? Well, you've asked me about five to six different <laughs> things in all of that. Um, I mean, you mentioned the word church. But that's got to be spelled out. 
Yeah. You know, so I spend most of my time in the second century. It really is the best place to be. And in the second century and into the third century and beyond, the primary word or image that's used for church is mother. Yeah. Christians in the second century, uh, Irenaeus especially, will simply speak of the church as being the virgin mother. The virgin mother in whose womb we are born. Yeah. And the injury, the background imagery for that actually is twofold. Um, one would be uh, Isaiah 54. So it's, it's, it's this love of scripture and going back to scripture and seeing it, you know, what's the reflection in all of that? The most important text in, in the whole of scripture, by scripture, I mean the Old Testament, the most important text in the whole of scripture for understanding Christ and his passion is Isaiah 53, the hymn of the suffering servant. Yeah, it's a whole chapter, actually it's longer than a chapter, and it's just so poignant and so beautiful and so hauntingly hauntingly beautiful uh, you, you cannot but read it and think of Christ and his passion because the very language of it is what shaped the evangelist language to describe the passion of Christ it finishes at Isaiah 53 12 most modern scholars will tell you that Isaiah 54 1 the next verse belongs to a different ode and is about something different Isaiah 54 1 says rejoice so barren one who did not bear Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you have not been in travail, for the children of the barren one is more than the children of her that is married, says the Lord. So the church is a barren one whose womb is opened by the passion of Christ. Yeah? Irenaeus talks about it as the pure one who opens purely the pure womb by which we are regenerated. Okay. Um, so it's a pure womb by which we are regenerated. Uh, because after all, how are we born again? We're born again through baptism, conforming ourselves into the death of Christ. Straightforwardly. So his passion opens up the womb in which we can be born as children of God in everything that I'm just talking about. The free, voluntary, self-sacrificial love, uh, turning us into sons of God rather than sons of Adam. Okay? All of that. Another image would be... Um, one that John plays with in so, so, so Paul, the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4 already uses Isaiah 54 1 to talk about our mother, the Jerusalem above. Okay, already that. Um, another image which feeds into this reflection on the church like that is Eve. Okay, so Adam, Genesis 2, it's not good for man to be alone. Adam is put to sleep. From his side, God takes a rib, builds a rib up into the woman, and then leads the woman to Adam. The two should become one flesh. Yeah, for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother. Well, it ha that passage has to be read Christologically, because Christ is the one who leads his father's side to join himself to the spouse. So Christ, as Adam is put to sleep, Christ is put to sleep. From Adam's rib comes, uh, from Adam's side comes a rib, built up into the woman. From the sleeping, from the side of the sleeping Christ comes a blood and, and water, baptism and Eucharist, symbols of the church. Um, the woman who comes from the side of Adam is called the mother of the living, but all her children die. The one who comes from the side of the sleeping Christ is indeed the mother of the living, but all her children must die to enter into life. Yeah, so John's playing with, with that imaging. John's playing with Genesis all the way through. And he, and he continues to do it in, in the next chapter, chapter 21, 2021. Um, when Eve was made and then brought to Adam, who would she have thought him to be? The gardener. Okay. <laughs> yeah. How does, how does Mary approach, to, when Mary sees a risen Christ in the Gospel of John, who does she think he is? The gardener. The gardener. John's playing with Genesis all the way through like that. Yeah. So that's the background for the imagery of um, church as mother. And we fundamentally must think of the church as our mother in whose womb we are born, putting on the identity of Christ, coming to life through our death, 
that's what church is. Before you think institution, before you think building, no, the reality of the church is, is this. Um, let me give a quick plug for Peter Leithart and his book on the Revelation. Yeah, he's just in a two-volume commentary on the Revelation because he takes this idea one step further and he argues that although we've become accustomed to reading John followed by the book of Acts, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, yeah? Well, Acts was never meant to follow John. Acts follows Luke. If you were to read John together with another book, it'd be the book of Revelation. And he would describe, I, I kind of got there in a different direction in my book on John, but he takes it further. He would describe the gospel and the book of Revelation as being a two-part royal romance. Yeah. So um, the gospel after the prologue starts off with a, with a wedding in Cana and Mary approaches Jesus only to be rebuffed. Woman, what have you to do with me? This is not my hour. My hour is not yet. Okay. He meets various women along the way, none of whom turn out to be the bride. Um, he's identified as the bridegroom with the Baptist being the friend of the bridegroom. And the bridegroom is finally unveiled on the cross. Yeah. But where's the bride? Okay. So the gospel is written by the disciple who stands at the foot of the cross. And it really finishes with that. We've got concluding parts, but that's the main part. The apocalypse starts with the same disciple in the same place, standing at the throne in heaven with a, with a slain lamb enthroned. Yeah, it's the same scene, but told on two different registers. The cross is the throne. The one on the cross is, a, is the enthroned slain lamb, John and John. So it starts off at the same point, and it ends with the marriage feast. Yeah, so it's like a two-part royal romance hinging upon the cross and written by the one standing at the cross in both places. Yeah, so the gospel is a preparation of the bridegroom, the book of Revelation is a preparation of the bride. It's all about how the number of martyrs must be built up so that the body can be prepared for the marriage feast that happens at the end. Yeah. So the, the, the whole book of Revelation, it's not predictions of last times and calculating the days and the hours and all that kind of thing. It is how the bride is being prepared for the eschatological marriage feast. I think... Um... Just to, to avoid any misconceptions, I guess, I'm trying to foresee the way people would interpret it, this coming from our more sectorist perspective and so on. I think um, maybe one of them might be that uh, people would think that we're being otherworldly and that we have no value for this life, if that makes sense. But that's obviously Yeah. <coughs> you know, yeah. Um... People have often asked me, after I've spoken for a while about martyrdom, whatever else it might be, people will say, well, why don't you just go kill yourself then? <laughs> just, just go ahead and save us all the trouble. <laughs> you know? And to which my response would be, well, two, two things. On the one hand, the church has from the beginning said, don't seek out martyrdom. Ignatius could only write so enthusiastically about what's happening partly to buck up his own spirits, but also because he's already in chains and about to be martyred. Okay, so on the one hand that. But on the other hand, my response would be uh, the words of Paul, who, who says, yes, it would be far better to die and depart and be with Christ, but for your sake, I'm here. Yeah? So in fact, to simply commit suicide would be selfish. Yeah, it, it would be, you know, yes, of course it would be far better to die and depart to be with Christ. It, it, but that would be selfish. The point about taking up the cross is precisely the, the selflessness of it. Yeah, you're laying down your life in service for others. Not for myself, but for others. So, as Paul says, for your sake I'm here. Yeah? So, in other words, the whole of our life has to become one of service. That is how we bear our martyria. 
That is what it means to take up the cross. So in the early centuries, yes, uh, for those martyrs, it was done graphically in blood in the arena. Historically, that's, well, I don't know, you know, if you count all the martyrs of Russia and, and the, other, yeah, the other things, numerically the 20th century has seen the most, but in terms of imagery, the, the early Christian martyrs, that's a particular space in, in history. But you can really say that the whole of all the different spiritual practices that develop, all the different philanthropic outreaches that develop, all of the kind of societal engagement that develops is a way of living out that martyria. If I haven't spoken about that that much, it's because I presume that that's known. And what I want to do is to get to the heart of what it in fact is about. Yeah, and that is that it's not just a different kind of uh, social movement, social program. Yeah, you can do, you have a purely secular social program. This is a way of embodying that uh, cruciform love that God shows us in Christ and extending it to others. Yep. Does that help? Yeah, that's, that's helpful too. And I think um, it touches upon something that I was going to ask you about as well, whenever I was going to speak about St. Athanasius and the Incarnation. So the popular historian Tom Holland has recently looked at the Incarnation as this um, historical and sociological phenomenon. And we see people trying to um, maybe appropriate Christian faith as um, maybe useful fiction or something. And I don't find that personally convincing. If Christ isn't risen, then as St. Paul says, is our faith not in vain? And um, would not then somebody like Nietzsche be right to, about the will to power? And that um, would seem to me to, to be the logical conclusion to play out in society rather than what you're saying, where we um, die in Christ and um, I think it contrasts too with something James K. Smith talked about what seems to be in London and he went through the myth of uh, Sisyphus and um, how the existentialists would view that and they would perceive that as the all you can really make of life but I think that con contrasts markedly with what you're saying and um, I guess something i don't want to use this term like christian existentialism or something like that i don't think that's that would be right but um i think that's a your, what your work it provides a clear contrast if that makes sense mm -hmm. um yeah other than that <laughs> i don't have anything to add that i just think that's maybe interesting it's had me f mentally frame this here and um but, but you know with with the work on the incarnation is perhaps where he's coming from um and really throughout Christian history, it's not simply words that persuade others, it's witness. It's actually a, an, an embodied life of love for others that is what persuades, yeah? So you mentioned Athanasius on the Incarnation and you, you added the words of Paul about if Christ is not raised, our faith is in vain, mm -hmm. yeah? It's so interesting when he comes to treat about, when he comes to treat, having spent so much of the work in On the Incarnation about Christ's passion, yeah? The different accounts of why he died, how he died, and all the rest of it. When it comes to treat Christ's resurrection, he makes no mention of the resurrection appearances in the gospel or the empty tomb. He simply says, you are the proof of his resurrection. It's not that that mark of a dead man to persuade others to abandon their idols and their vices and to, and to take up the cross and follow him. No dead man does that. Therefore, if you are doing that, he must be risen. Yep. Yeah. So he actually puts a proof the other way around. Yep. Yeah. You know, because Christians are taking up the cross, the faith of the cross, and trampling down their fear of death underfoot in service for others, that is a proof that Christ is risen because they're his body. Thank you for that, Father John. I um I also wanted to ask you something about a more internal Christian thing, and maybe even for Orthodox specifically. So um your area is patristics. So I wanted to ask you about the church fathers and um the way that they're kind of perceived now. So I've written here about how 
um, there's maybe a tendency to read the fathers in a kind of fundamentalist way. And um, I think your work is important in addressing that because you suggest this more symphonic understanding and the church yeah. and so on. Yeah. So the one thing I really learned from reading the fathers is to see things differently than I thought. Yeah. And that's probably, uh, I don't know, the, the most anathema thing that the patristic <laughs> fundamentalist would want to hear. Yeah. It seems to me that there are two ways of approaching. I mean, you can say it for history in general, but in this case, we talk about theology, we talk about the history of theology, the fathers, the writers. So one thing I've learned from, from history, from studying the writers of the first centuries, and the thing I value most is I've learned to think differently than I had thought earlier on. Yeah, And that, that probably is anathema to those who resort to the fathers as a bastion of eternal, unchanging truth and so on. It seems that to me really there are, there are two different ways of approaching the fathers, and this really goes for any kind of historical discipline. Um, one way would be to start off with what we already know about theology, and then to read the fathers and find confirmation of what you already know. Yeah, you know, we know there's a trinity, we know there's not a quaternity. <laughs> yeah, we, we know that Christ is both divine and human, we know all these things. And so you read through them and you your eyes focus on the things which you think you already know, and you 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 kind of bullet point that, as it were, you know, or bracket that and take that bit out, you know, highlight that piece in, in the work, underline it in the book because you know you already know it. Another way of reading them is to really try and understand what they are saying on their own terms. Yeah? And obviously, you can never escape your own presuppositions, but you can allow your presuppositions to be put into question if you do it self-consciously, to allow your presuppositions to be put into question by what a particular writer is saying. So, I, you know, I want to know what Irenaeus is saying. I want to know what Origen is saying, good and bad largely good. I want to know what Athanasius is saying. A classic example would be Athanasius. He writes a work called On the Incarnation. Yeah, we all know the work on the Incarnation. It's a great work by the great Athanasius on the treatise on the Incarnation. When we use the word incarnation, we mean something like an amalgamation of John 1.14 with the infancy narratives in Mark and Matthew and Luke. Yeah, the word became flesh by, by, by being born of Mary. Yeah? Well, the infancy narratives don't talk about the word of God. And John 1.14 doesn't talk about a birth. So why do we put them together like that? Where do we get that from? And then Athanasius writes the work on the incarnation and doesn't say practically anything about the birth of Jesus. It's all about how he had to die on the cross to show us who God is and restore us to life. That is incarnation. And that goes back to the point we were talking about earlier about how he treats resurrection. We are his body. Yeah. Um, that's what he means by incarnation. So if he means incarnation by that, well, that puts in question where we get our word from or how we're using our word. Yeah. So, you know, to allow your own presuppositions to be challenged. And when you do that, you can actually hear each of the fathers in their distinctiveness. You know, Irenaeus in the second century is not Maximus in the seventh century. Basil of Caesarea is not his brother Gregory. Writing at the same time, same parents, all the rest of it, but they've got very different voices. Yeah. So rather than synthesizing all the fathers into an ultimate synthesis, this is patristic theology. No, I'd rather hear them in their symphonic relationship. Yeah? A symphony is essentially different voices. Different voices diachronically through time and synchronically at any given moment. Yeah? A symphony is synchronically and diachronically polyphonous. Many voices. Okay? Um, and together it forms a beautiful symphony. Now, you've also got to learn how to hear it as a symphony and not a cacophony. Yeah. And I argue, and I've been doing this in all sorts of books, that if you look at 
each one of them as a witness to the faith in their time and place and circumstances, um, proclaiming the Christ we were talking about earlier, the crucified and risen one as proclaimed by the apostles in accordance with scripture and counting the breaking of the bread. It is a symphony. If you're looking at it for anything else, it just becomes a cacophony. Okay. And then the final point to draw from that, that way of thinking about it would be that if you want to do theology, if you want to take part in the symphony, what you've got to do is read the score of the earlier movements. Only by reading the score of the earlier movements can you take your part today. And the way that you sing your part today may well be different than what went before. Just like Athanasius is from Origen, or whoever. It may well be different from what went before, but it will still be part of the same symphony. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Thank you, Father John. I think to um, just regard, regarding then art uh, as it has progressed, um, I want to ask you a little bit about, uh, so in the Orthodox Church, obviously, icons are very integral. But then in the West, I guess, um, I don't want to be too simplistic there, but you have the, the Renaissance and how art developed and different things like that. I'm just kind of curious, um, even from the modern age or any of those areas, that, that you think this understanding of um, Christ has been conveyed very powerfully in art. So I'll give a simple example of what, just uh, why I'm asking this. So um, Terence Malick, the Christian filmmaker, he has mm. think, attempted to put Christological, well, whatever, whatever different themes into uh, his work. And he, he has a film, A Hidden Life, which I thought was beautiful. And it's about Franz Jagerstatter, the martyr in Austria who refused to um, take an oath of allegiance to Hitler and so forth. And um, I think it touches upon many of the things that we've been talking about. I'm just kind of curious, are there any other examples in would any art, you know, it is another way of theologizing Christ, the crucified and risen, as proclaimed by the apostles in accordance with scripture, encountered in the breaking of the bread. I would always say that to be very specific about whom I mean, but iconography also um, has different schools. You know, you know, Russian iconography of the Rublov era compared to the Cretan school or whatever. You know, they're different schools with different temperaments, but but they're, they're things which has always got in common. Yeah, so iconography, iconography didn't really go through the naturalism of the Renaissance and so on. Okay, yes, it did get adapted. That kind of style did get adapted in eighteenth, nineteenth century Russia, but a whole lot of other things going on with that. But that's also a development just within human culture. Yeah, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the naturalism of, of Renaissance. There's simply nothing wrong with that at all, or Cubism or Dadaism or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I spoke about iconography and variations within iconography in different schools and epochs and eras and so on. Uh, with regard to culture more generally, there's been tremendous uh, fertile ground for orthodox engagement with culture more generally, artistic fields more generally. Uh, especially within the Russian emigre circles, or actually Russian circles before that, things like Dostoevsky. I mean, you know, you'd really have to say, are his novels theology or literature? <laughs> you know, that was Karamazov. That's one of the most important theological works ever written, surely, on the one hand, yeah. Um, you're talking about Terence Malick, beautiful film. Tarkovsky. No, they're, they're profoundly theological. In the art, in the visual arts, painting more, more generally, um, Kandinsky, yeah. And then we were talking about Sophroni earlier on, Archimandrite Sophroni, Saint Sophroni. Well, you know, his entree really into the Western world was as a painter in Paris in the 20s and 30s in that formative period of abstract expressionism or whatever it was that was going on at the time. So, you know, there is all of that, definitely. Yeah, brilliant. And um, thank you for that, Father John. Mm -hmm. i ask you, is there anything else that you're working on at the moment that you'd like to tell us about or that you have the passion to get involved with in the future? <laughs> um, I'm, I'm working on a number of different things. I've got, I've got various essays and articles I'm supposed to write by last month. <laughs> uh, 
I'm doing a new edition of Gregory of Nyssa on the making of man, De Hominis Officio, which really should be called on the human image. Yeah. And I'm doing that because I really want to get more, to, to, to really work my way through the, the anthropological things we were talking about earlier, you know, about what it is to be a human being and those kind of questions. So that's my profound work on all of that. Um, the next book I'm going to write is going to is is called will be called the lamb the woman the marriage feast theology ecclesiology anthropology okay and i should have that done by next year so publication date after that i've got a number of other books i'm supposed to be planning on writing all on my head at the moment and then the other major project i'm doing is to do a new edition of Irenaeus, new edition translation of Irenaeus. so having done Irenaeus, origin athanasius on the incarnation gregoriness on the make of man and a work on the gospel of john yeah i think i think i've got the basis covered for a bit <laughs> yeah excellent and thank god for it and um i look forward to those works and yeah. um, i hope others do as well thank you so much for joining me today fellow john it's been a really, really good to be with you